0: Yeah,
1: you can <laughs> Yeah, you understood, right? I think. <laughs> you may be seated. I presume whatever Ron was saying about me was good. So. Now, today is uh, Father's Day. Thank you. God bless. Happy Father's Day to all you fathers. My dad, uh, as I'm thinking about Father's Day, uh, has been a um, gospel preacher, Bible believing, faithful for over 60 years. He would always say, "He says, son, you can always tell the best Christians in any church. They're the ones that come to Sunday school." (laughs) So, if he was correct about that, I'm looking. That's the best Christians in the church. Now, don't tell the others when they arrive that I said that. They may not listen to me. But um, I, uh, it's called Sunday School, but I notice out on the lovely marquee, I love how it says 930 Bible class, Bible class. Because if you believe the Bible's the inspired word of God, infallible word, then it's worthy of study. Uh, Not just on Sunday, but certainly on Sunday. This is the textbook. It's God's Word, and we're going to investigate it today. Um, I'm going to pose today a big question and attempt to answer it briefly. Who are God's chosen people? Who are God's chosen people? Now, if you watch TV... Uh, or you're on the web, you'll see a lot of people speak about God's chosen people. And um, in many cases, preachers will have a number of flags behind them, large flags of the state of Israel, and then we'll talk about Israel being God's chosen people. On the other hand, we'll see that we're chosen, and people will say, well, that sounds like election to me. What does the Bible teach about election? Uh, well, we're going to address that today. Uh, And it's important because we won't understand what God is doing in the world. We won't understand what God's doing in the world if we don't know who his chosen people are. We won't understand how to read the Bible if we don't know who God's chosen people are. So I'm going to address that today and I plan to leave plenty of time for questions so you can uh, confuse me with your questions. And if not, at least I can confuse you <laughs> with my answers. Uh, I'd like to uh, begin today by reading from Galatians, chapter 3, Galatians, uh, Paul's epistle to these churches in uh, ancient uh, Gaul, Galatians chapter 3. And I'm going to read the last few verses, 26 to 29. In fact, uh, I'm reading for uh, our worship service today in the sermon, the first few verses of Galatians 3. So you're going to get a lot of Galatians today. Galatians chapter 3, verses uh, 26 to 29. Paul is talking about the law and teaching that the law, the Mosaic law, while good, cannot save us and was never intended to save us. Only Jesus Christ can. But let's read verses 26 to 29. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one. In Christ Jesus, and if you're Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs, according to the promise. I'm going to keep in particular verse 29 in your mind. Be thinking about that as we talk. I'm going to get back to that in a minute. But first thing, I'm going to talk about the origin of God's people, and then the failure of God's people, and then the victory of God's people. Um, so, we begin perhaps by asking ourselves this question Why did God create man? Well, we get an idea from that in John chapter 17, where Jesus is praying. It's called the Great High Priestly Prayer. He's praying for his disciples. It says, Father, please show them the glory that you and I have had from eternity. It seems what the Lord is saying there is the members of the Trinity had this wonderful, glorious communion. Can you imagine what it was like in eternity past for God to commune with God? Only joy and rapture, no sin. The most powerful, loving being imaginable, communing, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And I imagine as we would look at it, they said, this is so good, we need to share this. And so they decided to create man in their own image. Man is not God. Understand that. Man can never be God, but man is created in the image of God. Theologians would say he's like an analog of God. And so we are like God in ways that only creatures can be like God, though we can never actually be God. The Trinity wanted to share their love and their life. And then he gave man the dominion mandate, or the dominion commission. Well, man is made in the image of God, and God is a dominion being. He has dominion over all things, isn't he? Isn't he the king? And so what does God do? He says to man, I've made this creation, you are the pinnacle of creation, and I'm deputizing you. I'm like putting a badge on you. And under my authority, your job is to steward the earth for my glory. (coughs) Tragically, of course, man's sinned. And so God said, oh, that's just terrible. Everything is spoiled. I'm going to throw it all away. God didn't say that. God doesn't operate that way. You know what's so wonderful? God is not a God of destruction. God is a God of redemption. So he didn't throw away the earth. He said, I'm not going to throw it away and start all over again. He said, I'm going to take this very broken thing and I'm going to fix it. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to use my son, Jesus Christ, to fix this very broken thing. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it wonderful that when we sin, God doesn't throw us away? What does he say? I'll fix it. I'll fix it by my grace. We can thank God for that, his glorious grace. So he put this plan of redemption into motion. And that's really when his chosen people began in earnest. You know, some people believe that God's chosen people began, well, obviously... In uh, Genesis chapter 11, Genesis chapter 12 with the calling of Abraham and the children of Israel. There weren't any chosen people of God before that. But that's false. Uh, Adam was God's chosen, Adam and Eve. Abel was God's chosen because he worshipped God as he was supposed to. Seth was God's chosen Then after a great worldwide apostasy, almost the entire world turned their back on God. And the Bible says in Genesis 6 that God was so grieved in his heart that he had made man. But there was one man, the Bible says, one man that found grace or favor in the eyes of the Lord. And who was that one man? Before Abraham, Noah was God's chosen. Noah was God's chosen. He loved God and put faith in him and obeyed god wonderful language the bible says about him it says noah walked with god you know what actually literally that means in the hebrew and i'm mentioning this because it's so precious it means noah rubbed shoulders with god you ever hear that old expression he and i were very close so we actually rub shoulders It says that Noah was so close to God and spoke with him and communed with him so much that he rubbed shoulders with God. It says the same thing, by the way, about Enoch. Same language. Rubbed shoulders with God. He was God's chosen. Sadly, then after the flood, men continued to turn away and they created a great tower to heaven as though they could become God, the Tower of Babel. God confounded their languages to separate them so they wouldn't try to become God. And then right after that, God did call Abraham. Abraham was a pagan. In ancient Ur, the fertile crescent area. Probably somewhere near ancient Iran. And God says, I'm going to make a great nation. And uh, they're later called the children of Israel. Formerly Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Then we get to, that's the origin of the people of God. And then we come to the failure of the beginning of the people of God, beginning with just these people, the Jews. God came to Abraham and he said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And there were three main promises of this covenant. One, I'm going to be a God to you and to your descendants in a unique way. Not that I won't be a God in some way to everyone else, but you, your descendants are going to be close to me and my unique people like no other people in the earth. He says it beautifully in Exodus. He says, I will bear you up on eagles' wings. It's as though we go on a high eagle. I'm going to set you on an eagle and carry you around, and you will look down, look down upon all the other nations of the earth. What a wonderful promise. And he says, I'm going to give you a multitudinous seed. You remember what he compared it to? Two things. He says, you will have so many descendants, there will be as many as the... Stars as you look out, and as the sand. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? A beautiful metaphor. Now remember, at the time, Abraham didn't even have any children, and he couldn't have any children. Way, way older. 90 years old, then 100. Couldn't have children naturally, and yet God gave him this promise. But then the third promise, he says, but your your seed, your descendants, are going to need a place to Lived, so I'm going to give them a land. Those are the three main promises of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, but even here, even here, there was election within the people of God. Not just the people of God as a whole, the children of Israel, but within the people of God. Of Abraham's seed. Abraham did have a seed. He jumped the gun and he had a child called Ishmael. Had God chosen Ishmael? No. Who did he choose? He chose Isaac. Then, of course, Isaac had sons. Were both of them specifically chosen of God? No. What does the Bible say? I've chosen Jacob and not Esau. And then from out of Israel, he chose specific tribes for his purposes. So, and this is a fundamental point that I want to make. From very early times, the chosen people of God did not refer only to the physical seed. God had something more in mind than simply a physical seed, though that's not unimportant. He had a spiritual seed of people who would belong to him and that he would honor, that he would choose, would follow him faithfully. Sadly, of course, the vast majority of these chosen people broke God's covenant. They broke his heart. Moses, of course, led the children of Israel out of Egypt. And they just obeyed and went into the promised land. And there was no problem, right? Wrong. Again and again, they complained and they murmured and God provided for them. And they didn't like how he provided some of the time. And they turned to idolatry and he gave them his law. And Moses came down with his law and already... With Aaron, they had turned to idolatry and fornication. And Joshua took them into, the, into Canaan, this great land that God had promised, but they were seduced by the pagans, and they intermarried with these pagans, and God had warned them, destroy these pagans, or they will vex you, become briars in your sides, as it were, poison and destroy you. And that's exactly what happened. Then you read, of course, the book of Judges. And again and again, Israel went into apostasy, turning their back on the Lord. Then they called for a king like the pagan nations. God gave them Saul, who was a faithless king. Thank God then he raised up a good and faithful king, though imperfect, David. David was a good king overall, all the days of his life. Sadly, his son Solomon became an idolater pagan wives turned his heart away. So God divided his kingdom, as you know, into north and south, and they continued in apostasy, and then later God led them into captivity. The north by the Assyrians, and the south by the Babylonians. Then there was a small revival, of course, under Ezra and Nehemiah. Not a huge revival, but a small revival. Cyrus sent many of the Jews back to rebuild the temple. Not as great as it was before, but again... In a few hundred years, the Jews of the time turned away from God. And their religion became very cold and formal and hard. Their heart was not given to God. And that's where the Pharisees and many of the other Jews were when Jesus Christ showed up. And that's where we come to the third and the main point, which is the victory of the people of God. Hey, after all that apostasy I've been boring you with the last few minutes and disappointing you with isn't it good to hear about the victory of the people of God so God decided you know what I'm not going to entrust my work and God knew this and planned this all along but I'm not going to entrust my work and my success simply to humans whom I take into covenant with me I'm going to give them one man the true seed of Abraham and that one man will be born as, as my, my son. My eternal son will be born in Bethlehem. Of the house of David. Of the lineage of the Jews. And he will be the true seed of Abraham. Now, this is what is imperative to understand, friends. If you haven't heard everything I've said, understand this. All of these promises given to Abraham all of these glorious covenant pledges that you read repeated in Deuteronomy and again and again in the Old Testament, all of these wonderful things that God will do, all of these eventually are centered in one person, Jesus Christ. If you don't understand that, you don't understand the Bible. Jesus Christ himself is the fulfillment of all of these Abrahamic promises, all of these great covenant promises. And you get the covenant promises by getting into Jesus Christ. That's how you become the beneficiary. Of course, the promise of this Messiah began in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman who would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Satan and his followers. Of course, this one who would do the crushing is Jesus Christ. He's the Messiah. And sometimes it's called, you may have seen this expression sometimes... Latin "proto" or proto-evangelium. That is the gospel in its very earliest prototypical form. The first gospel message of the Bible is not in John 3.16. It's not in Matthew chapter 1. It's not even in Psalm 23. The first gospel message of the Bible is in Genesis 3.15. That God's going to use his son, the Messiah, to crush evil. This Messiah would be the Messiah not just of the Jews, but of the Gentiles. Now I'm going to read some verses. A couple of them we'll turn to. It's imperative you understand these verses. We read in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 10. You can always write these verses down and read them later. I'm giving you a powerful series of Bible verses that prove what I'm saying. We read in Isaiah 11, 11 10 that the root of Jesse will stand. It's a prediction from Isaiah. The root of Jesse shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentile shall seek him. This notion that God would be a God both to Jew and Gentile didn't come around just in the New Testament. Again and again the Old Testament taught that the covenant promises were not just for the Jews but also for the Gentiles. That's not just something that you read about in Romans. It's throughout the Old Testament. We read in Amos chapter 9, 11 and 12. God promises, I will raise up the tabernacle of David and they, my people that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Gentiles who are called by my name? Well, God, I thought it was only the Jews that were called by your name. No, indeed, Jehovah said. The very reason, he says in the New Testament, that I called Abraham, the very reason is so that he can be a blessing to the entire world, not just the Jews. Yes. I want you, however, to turn to an amazing text. I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 56. This is one of the few times I'll have you turn. Isaiah 56. This is so good, I really want you to see it. To those who may think, well, I'm not a Jew, therefore I'm not part of the people of God. I'm therefore outside the covenant. Notice Isaiah 56. Isaiah chapter 56. Notice first verse 3. Do not let the son of the foreigner, who has joined himself to the Lord, speak saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Don't say that, God says. Don't say that because you're a foreigner. But you've called on my name, but you are not my people. Notice please then, verse 6 also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations." Notice finally verse 8, the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel said, yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. Isn't that one of the most precious promises? He says, if you don't belong to the Jews and you think, well, I'm a second class citizen. I'm not a Jew. Therefore, I can't be a part of the people of God. Do you notice what it says there? I love how beautifully it says it. If you join yourself to the Lord and serve Him, you too are a part of the people of God. And Paul the Apostle was not the first person to say that. Isaiah said that. And others in the Old Testament. God's plan all along in calling Israel was to expand His people into a multitude from all nations and all races. This uh, Expanded because the Jews, sadly, as a whole, finally exhausted God's mercy. The Jews turned away from God again and again. And did not God warn them in the Old Testament? Did he not warn them in the New Testament? In his parables, remember, Jesus Christ warned that the kingdom would be taken from the Jews. And what does he say? And given to a people that would honor him. And then think, I don't have time today to go into them, but those of you that have read the word, and I hope that's all of you, Think about the parable of the two sons. The parable of the vine dressers. The parable of the wedding feast. Those who are initially called, what did they do? They turned their back on God. So what did God say? I'm going to quit. I failed. No. He says, go out into the highways and hedges that my house will be filled. He's talking about the Gentiles. He's talking about us. They will become my chosen people. Finally, in Matthew 24, Jesus predicted the horrific destruction of jerusalem i was talking with your pastor about it yesterday read the description of it or even just short portions if you can from uh, josephus jesus said there was never a time in the history of the world neither will there ever be a time as bad as that time my friends i'll tell you if you read what happened to the jews because of their apostasy auschwitz was not that bad those who suffered even in the Soviet Union, in communist China, and even tragically today in North Korea, yes, they suffer horrifically, but there was no suffering and tragedy like what happened between about A.D. 68, 69, and, and A.D. 70, under the Roman destruction. Every, the Bible says that the temple would be overturned. Every, every single stone was overturned. Jews were crucified everywhere, all over the city. The city was burning. Why? Because they had finally forever turned their back on God. And God unleashed his judgment. It was a terrible thing. Did God say I failed? No he hadn't failed. He has a covenant people. Those who belong to Abraham by faith. And thus while God's wrath came upon them. The Jews to the uttermost. According to 1 Thessalonians 2.16. He has showered his grace on his covenant people. His church. He planned this all along, by the way. But now he is guaranteed success. And how did he do this? His own son would be the promised seed. The corporate seed, that is us. We are secured by the individual seed. Jesus Christ. And all united to him by faith. Now, we won't turn there. You might want to write down 1 Peter two six. Did you know... We talk about the doctrine of election. The Bible teaches election very clearly. But do you know... Who mainly is the elect in the Bible? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's main elect. That's the language in 1 Peter 2, verse 6. Jesus Christ is God's elect. He is God's chosen one to fulfill his great and glorious promises. And we become God's chosen. God's chosen people by union with Jesus Christ. People talk about the doctrine of election. Say, isn't it a glorious promise? Before the foundation of the world, we were chosen. Yes, but Paul says in Ephesians, we are chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. God doesn't have just some little plan over here and say, I'm going to say this one and that one and this one and that one. How will I do that? Oh, maybe I'll send my son. A thousand times, no. He chooses His son first. And all of those who are in the Son are His chosen people. Therefore... The true Jews are all of those united to the one elect Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. You want to know who the Jews are? The true Jews, would you like to know in the eyes of God who the true Jews are? Those who belong to the chosen one, the Messiah. I'll list for you three texts and cite part of them. You can look them up later. In Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29... Paul says plainly, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but who is one inwardly. Not of the flesh, but one who internally has given his heart and mind and life to Jesus Christ. And then we read in Romans chapter 4 verse 11, Abraham, our father, wasn't merely circumcised, but he was also, it tells us, to follow the example of the faith of Abraham. That is, Abraham is the father of all of those. Who trust in Christ Amen. and then in Romans 9 24 and 25 we read I will call them my people who were not my people by the way that's quoted in the Old Testament Hosea and there are other texts in the Bible speaking of the true Israel now here's the conclusion the new covenant church those of us in this new covenant body are the chosen people of God When somebody asks, well, who are God's chosen people? You say, I know the answer to that. I am. We are. We're the chosen people of God. We also are the inheritors of the promises. Now I want you to think about this for a minute because it's vital. What did I say were the three main provisions of the promises to Abraham? First, God would be a God to Abraham and his descendants. Like no other people on the earth. Didn't I say that? And they would be born up on eagle's wings. And they would look down on all others as being God's special people. But wait a minute. If Jesus Christ is God's chosen seed. And if we belong to that chosen seed by getting into Jesus Christ by faith. Well then we are God's chosen people. We're exalted above all the people on the earth. Because we're a part of the seed of Abraham. He said he would make also. What was the second? promise covenant promise a multitude of people do you know the church historically is made up of millions and millions of millions who have been united to Jesus Christ and today some of them aren't in nice buildings like this some of them tragically in North Korea they're out in the field somewhere maybe 10 of them quietly singing and guess what they're just as much a part of the chosen race as you and I are some of them in great cathedrals in Europe that haven't gone apostate. A few of them haven't. In great cathedrals, saying the Apostles' Creed and hearing a message from the Word of God, perhaps in their German tongue. And they too are the chosen people of God, a multitude. But now, here's a point where some people get a little frightened. What also? What was the third provision? The land. And we read from Romans chapter 4 that the promises to Abraham weren't eventually simply the land of Canaan. But he was to be the inheritor of the entire earth. It belongs to the people of God. Now listen carefully to me. God's covenant promises are not promises of escape. They're promises of dominion. The promises to the Jews, the Old Testament Jews, and to the one great Jew, the chosen Jew, Jesus Christ is that they would inherit the world. Jesus said the meek, the tamed of God, will inherit the earth. Understand, please, that this world does not belong to Satan. This world belongs to God. And Satan is a squatter. He's come in and he's erected a a couple of pup tents and bought some BB guns and tried to convince everybody that he's going to run the place. No, this is God's world. And this is given to the people of God. We are his covenant people. We are called to exercise dominion here. I understand that. I know some Christians pray they're in a great deal of pain or they go through great difficulties. And they will pray, I can't wait until God gets me out of this mess. What I am truly waiting for is for God to help me escape from this old sin-scarred world. God's not going to answer that prayer. Now, we will die. I understand that. God gives us victory in the midst of our difficulties. He doesn't spare us from all the difficulties. Right. He gives us victory over difficulties. Yes. Yes. Amen. Amen. Jesus Christ did have to go to the cross. But as a result of the cross, he had great victory. Yes. And the early Christians went through great persecution. And then, and then, in the 4th century with Constantine, they began to have great victory. So don't ask God for escape. Ask him for victory. That's what he's called us to. I conclude then. Some people say, is there then no uh, future for the Jews? Oh yes, I believe according to Romans 11, according to God's promises, there is to be one day a multitude. A multitude of the Jews will be saved. They will turn to the Lord. Now understand that. They will turn to the Lord, their Messiah, and be saved. Please understand, God does not have two separate parallel programs going right now. Here he's got the program of the church and Jesus Christ and he's working. But he's also working with the Jews separately and, you know, they really don't have to trust in Christ. But they're still God's chosen people and he's working with them in some separate plan. My friends, there is no separate plan. There is one plan and that plan is Jesus Christ and there is no other plan. There's no other plan. And the Bible does promise that one day many, many Jews will say, oh, what have we done? What have our ancestors done? And turn their hearts and be converted. But, this is crucial, that's not the same thing as saying that God will restore Israel as a political entity. That's completely separate. Say, well, God gave promises to the Jews and there would be a great political kingdom. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. Political Israel is not important. Now, it's good for us often as Americans at this time to support a democracy over there. Nothing wrong with that. There is an anti-Semitic bone in our body, or there shouldn't be. We should love the Jewish people. But the unbelieving Jews are still unbelieving Jews. They need Jesus Christ. Well, aren't they special? Well, no, they're special when they trust in Jesus Christ. That's vital. Believing Christian Arabs are closer to us than unbelieving Jews. You understand that? That's a crucial point to understand. So, having said that, know this. We are the inheritors. We, the true Jews, the people of God, are the inheritors of all of these promises. And that is why it's so precious. I think I'll mention this in the sermon today briefly. When you read the book of Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 29, you say, well, that was given to the Jews. I, I sort of can look at a distance. And look over the Jewish shoulder as they're reading. No, nobody's shoulder to look over. You read those promises, they're to you and me. Amen. You read the book of Psalms, all of these glorious promises. You say, well, those promises were just to David and the Jews. No, they're to the covenant people of God. And who are the covenant people of God? We are. Those promises are to us. Therefore, know that we are the inheritors. All right, I'll stop there. And I've left 10, 15 minutes for questions. Any questions? Any questions? <laughs> I will well it's either that I spoke so well I've covered everything so perfectly that nobody has any question or I've thoroughly confused everyone
0: <laughs> maybe you need to ask questions
1: <laughs> and when I wrote it down and it, was, it really
0: impacted when you said that Jesus, the Son of God, was the first elected one, yes, and and it, it doesn't take much to go from that to realize that if you are in Christ, you are elected. So many people struggle with that. How can we relate that to them? When I I can't, none come to mind, but I get all these questions and, and, and they throw us off. Can you elaborate on that a little bit?
1: Yes. So people often say, well, if the Bible teaches election, as the Great Reformation said, it seems totally unfair that God would elect some and not others. But I would put it a little differently if they say that. Ask people, are you trusting in Jesus Christ? Yes. Is he your only hope of salvation? Yes. Have you given your life to him? Yes, indeed. Then I can promise you on the authority of the word of God, you are one of God's elect. All of those that have trusted Jesus Christ, truly trusted him, are his elect people. And you can assure them of that. Charles Spurgeon one time was speaking about, you know, Spurgeon, the great Baptist, Calvinist preacher, and he was preaching on election. And he says, I know there are a lot of unbelievers out there that they won't trust The faith won't trust Jesus Christ because they say election is unfair. His response was classic Spurgeon. He says, why would you care? He says, if you trusted Jesus Christ, do you want to bow the knee to Jesus Christ? Do you want to throw yourself completely at his mercy? Do you want to trust in him and him alone for salvation and not your own works? Do you want to amend your life as a result of the gospel and be in his house every Sunday? Do you want to do that? Well, no. He says, well, then why should you care if you're not elected? the only people that really care about election are those that want to be among the people of God and I can assure you and you can assure your friends all of those that have trusted in Jesus Christ we can't look in people's hearts your pastor and I were talking about that someone said it would be really great if God had come down and taken a big magic marker and put a little cross on the head of everybody that was elect we'd go preach the gospel to them but he didn't do that That's God's secret work. And we're not privy to God's secret counsels. We are privy, however, to preach the gospel to all people. And all of those who trust in Jesus Christ. And that's why the reformers would say, the doctrine of election is in no way a troublesome doctrine. In no way a frightful doctrine. It's one of the great comforting doctrines. Because you see, if we have truly trusted in Jesus Christ, nothing can separate us from the love of God. We belong to him. We cannot lose our salvation. We will live a life of faith and obedience because of what God has done. Excellent question, Chuck. Are there any other questions? Yes, sir.
0: Have you heard the examples of uh, Noah, uh, Abel? My question is specifically, I don't know if we... Uh, we made a mistake when we uh, explained the, the, the doctrine of election, saying that uh, they were um, sinners in the same level as others and they were just uh, chosen just because uh, God <laughs> elected them. Uh, it's hard for me to, to say that because uh, somehow God. Saw them, uh, I don't know, it's, it's hard for me to explain. I know and exactly. They were as speaking as the others, and they were just chosen. Uh,
1: that is I a very... We,
0: we have to balance that. Mm-hmm. They were separated in, in God saw something, and uh, it's hard to sometimes to explain that, uh, yes, it's, it's an it's unconditional election, but at the same time, I think they were... ...somehow responsible in, uh, in you said it, able, because he, uh, uh, he adored in a correct way. So my question is how to conciliate
1: how to, those two ideas. I understand exactly, and it's amazing. That was a very thoughtful question. Everyone understand what he said? So, the Bible does teach that we're not saved by our good works. We're not saved because God saw that we were going to be great people. Yet, on the other hand, is it not interesting that the Bible says Noah found favor? And why did he find favor? Because he walked with God. So, our dear friend there makes a vital point. He shows here, and this is the truth, that the doctrine of election and the doctrine of faithful obedience just go hand in glove. They just go hand in glove. God doesn't save anybody on the basis of their good works. But as we read about Noah, did you notice it says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord? It doesn't say, Noah was as evil as our friend said. Noah was just as pagan as everybody else. Noah was just committing all these terrible sins. He was committing incest and murder. But God sovereignly chose him. That's not quite what it says. He wasn't saved because of his works. But because God chose him, he also was a godly man. So let us not forget what this question is, it's a vital fact. God's election and faithfulness just go right together, and they're never separated. Which means that people that live a godless life persistently and never repent are not God's chosen people. They're not. Yes, sir?
0: Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and he was pure in all his generations.
1: But why? Well, of course, because God was the one that put it in his heart to do that. Yes, That's right. I
0: think so we got to go another step.
1: Yes. Another step
0: backwards. So whenever the, the Bible says there was a righteous man or a good man, it's always, why I was he? Why did I believe? Why am I that's only right. one in
1: my family that believe? That's right. That's right. And then having, that's true. And having said that, we can also say that because of what God has done, it's not correct to say that We sinners are identical to unbelievers. This is a false teaching that goes around, and it goes like this. Well, you should never criticize um, Lady Gaga or some other perverse person because, they say, you have to understand, you're just as bad as they are. You're just as much a sinner as they are. That's false. That's wrong. We're not a sinner like that. We're saved sinners. Now, if you don't believe that, I would like for you to read in the book, of Proverbs, uh, the book of Psalms. Have you ever noticed in the book of Psalms, David will say, Lord, honor me because I'm a righteous man. I'm a righteous man. I'm a righteous man. Now, if you talk to some people, say, well, I mean, doesn't the Bible say there's none righteous? No, not one, and we're just as bad as everybody else. If we are just as bad as everybody else, what is the gospel all about? The gospel isn't designed just to take you to heaven. The gospel is designed to change people. Make them godly people, spirit-filled people, exercising dominion in the earth. Now, why are we righteous? Why are we godly? Because of what your pastor said, because of God's elective grace. But God changes people. And Noah found grace and favor, yes, because God chose him, but also because he was a righteous man. God made him a righteous man. He found favor because he rubbed shoulders with the Lord. Both of these truths are taught in the Bible. That's one in the many. What's that? One in the many. That's right. Are there, uh, we got time for maybe one or two more questions, if there are any.
0: I guess in that line is yes. also uh, the Marian doctor, uh, doctrine, where it talks about she's full of grace, full yes. of favor. And again, that's another sect of, that says that's why we worship her because of that so is that in line
1: yes so you'll have another example not just mary but you remember it spoke about um zachariah and anna at the time it's amazing about those were in the temple when jesus came they were righteous they were righteous people walking in all the ways of the law well we're scratching our heads and saying well wait a minute i thought everybody's a sinner they are but they were redeemed sinners and that's the key. That's the th- it's important to understand that. If you understand only the message of walking in obedience and not the message of grace, that can lead to works righteousness. Well, we're able to earn our salvation. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that. We're saved entirely by grace. But if you understand only that salvation by grace is necessary and it has no component of obedience or faithfulness, that becomes antinomian. So both of these are true. We're called to righteous obedience and we're called on the basis of God's grace and his work in our lives. Both of them work together. Some people say, well, how do you reconcile those two? We don't have to reconcile them. They're friends. They never fell out. They've always been friends. They don't need to be reconciled. Any other questions? This has been really great. Thank you for listening. Let's close in prayer. Father, we're so grateful for the truth of your word. We're grateful for the truths of your word, all of them, and we see how that they are harmonious. They work together. Lord, bless this dear congregation and these dear Christians that have come out for Sunday school, for Bible class, to learn from your word. We ask that you bless the worship today, bless the fathers here that are honored on this day. Most of all, oh God, bless us as your chosen people the true Israel, O God, and all of these covenant promises. May we, through your grace, be faithful to you. We pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the true Jew, the true seed of Abraham. In his name we pray. Amen.